All right, who's ready for this table to get flipped? Right? Some people are getting nervous in the front row. I can see you. If you weren't here last week, I did flip a table, okay, because that's what Jesus did, right? He flipped tables and his way to flip the world upside down. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here at Arise Church Denver. I'm so glad that you are gathered here on, in person and online, wherever you're joining us from. I'm so glad. Um, if you are newish to our church, too, I want you to go to arisedenver.com connect. If you fill out the I'm new form, there's a little I'm new button, you fill that form out, it allows us to connect with you, get to know you a little bit, even if you're online. A couple weeks ago, I got to connect with someone who joins us every week from Maine. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah. So I love, and if you're here, hi, it's good to see you again. I'm glad. So even if you're online and you're part of our church like every week from somewhere else, we want to get to know you. So fill out that I'm new form at arisedenver.com connect. When you do that, not only do we get to connect with you, but we donate $5 to the Denver Rescue Mission to help someone in need, okay? You're giving a gift to somebody in need by just filling out that form, so please do that so we can connect. And then, of course, come back next week. After each of our service times, we're going to have that start class right upstairs, just a real quick orientation so that you can get to know who we are as a church and we can get to know you even a little bit more. So we are in our um, third week of our Flipping Table series. If you've missed any of those um, messages, I get it, right? You can find them online, okay? That's what we can do here now, okay? There's the audio, the video, and the transcript of every message at arisedenver.com slash media so you can catch up because we are seeing this side of Jesus <laughs> that sometimes isn't often depicted. I remember growing up, there was the flannel graphs. Who had flannel graphs when they were a kid in Sunday school? And on the flannel graph, they'd put up there these little pictures of like Jesus. He's always carrying a lamb. It's like, oh, he's just so happy frolicking through the meadow, right? But sometimes Jesus flipped tables, and that's what we're seeing in this series, uh, this side of Jesus as the king and the king of kings, and that's what we're going to see again today. So Melissa and I's twins are, are now two years old, so they're at the, the age now that we like to play with blocks, okay? I got some blocks here for you guys. Um, we like to play with blocks, and they're past the stage where it's like, Dad, you build the, the tower so I can knock it over. Now we're at the phase that they'll help me build the tower so that they can knock it over, okay? It's a good phase. Yes, it's a good phase to be in. And when you're building blocks, one thing that we discovered pretty quickly, because our basement is carpeted, that if you have carpet, right? If you have carpet and you try to build a tower, what happens, guys? It just doesn't work. Like, it doesn't matter how good the blocks are, right? You could have the best, most solid blocks in the world, and it's just going to fall over, right? I don't even need to flip the table, if it's on something that's soft, if it's not firm, right, as a foundation, it's, it doesn't matter how good your blocks are, how colorful they are, how well-designed what you're building with. It, it doesn't matter if the foundation isn't right, right? But if you do have a firm foundation, look at this thing, okay? This is pretty firm, right? That's solid, okay? If, if you build a tower on something solid like that when we're at home, we can build some pretty huge towers, right? And my kids still love... I don't know, Canaan can somehow still get his foot up to kick, like, no matter what we build on. But when you build on something firm like that, you can build a pretty amazing tower, right? And it stays. It's firm. So, so what we build on is so important. What we build on is so important. No matter what we build on top of it, what really matters is the foundation, what we're building on. And that's going to be so important today in our message called The Cornerstone. Because what Jesus is going to teach us very clearly that is that anything that is not built on the cornerstone will collapse. Do you hear me? Anything not built on the cornerstone will collapse. There's only one cornerstone that is able to, to have your life built on it, our, our church built on it, your family built on it. 
Nothing can do it except the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, I want you to join with me. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 1 through 19 today. Last week we covered four verses. This week we're covering about 20 verses, right? So Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. And if you have just a phone, if you want to follow along, that's great too. You can find the YouVersion Bible app. And in the very bottom right-hand corner, there's a More button. And then it shows you events. And you can search for Rice Church Denver. Every single week we have our scripture. And you can take some notes right in the app, Okay. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. So Jesus, if you remember, has just come into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. He's finally coming in as king. He declares that I'm the king. He's, he's God himself come in the flesh into the city of God's people, Jerusalem. And last week we saw him go into the temple, which is where God's presence resides. And he flipped everything upside down. He flipped religion upside down, not just flipping tables, not just driving out the animals, because he was declaring that Jesus, he himself, is the temple, that he is the priest, that he is the sacrifice. We don't need any of that religious stuff anymore. Just come to Jesus. And it was so powerful to see that. And then he sets up camp. If, if you remember the very end of the passage, he's teaching now every single day in the temple. It's like, I don't care what all those religious people are doing, the priest, because I'm what you've come to. And it says at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that God has announced that there's freedom for captives, good news for the poor, teaching good stuff, right? It says the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. These are the religious people, right? These are the religious leaders. These are the pastors of the day. They run the nonprofits. They sit in city councils. They're the leaders. In verse 2, they say, tell us by what, what does it say? What authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Who gives you the right to come in here and flip our religion upside down? Why can you come in here and throw everything off and say that, that you're the thing, you're the temple? with your symbolic action, that you're the priest, that you're the final sacrifice. How can you do any of that, Jesus? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? And it says in verse 3, he replied, I will also ask you a question. <laughs> Jesus is so good at this. Okay, he's not a politician. Politicians avoid questions, right? <laughs> we know that, right? But he spins it around and asks them a question. He says, tell me, verse 4, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Who's he talking about? This is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. And John was a phenomenal preacher that came right before Jesus. One of Jesus' cousins, a relative of Jesus. And John was a phenomenal preacher. He was the Billy Graham of his day because he went out and he wore the funniest clothes. It wasn't trendy or whatever. He was wearing like Camel clothes, okay, he was eating locusts, okay, this guy ate bugs out in the desert in the middle of nowhere, and thousands upon thousands of people came out to hear him. The rich and the poor, everybody wanted to go hear John because he preached this powerful message of repentance. You're sinning, and unless you turn from your sins, you're going to burn, okay? Turn and burn was his message, and people got baptized because that showed that their sins were being forgiven. They were repenting. So John is just this, the most popular preacher like to the day at this time. And Jesus says, hey, remember that guy, John the Baptist? He came out preaching. He was out in the wilderness. Everyone wanted to go hear John. So where did he get his authority? 
What gave him the right to say Turner burned? Because <laughs> that's not a popular message, and it wasn't popular then either, okay? Just in case you guys are wondering, okay? But when God's power shows up, people listen. People listen, even if it's a hard word to hear. That's why Jesus shows up flipping tables, right? So, so where, Jesus, and you tell me, John came before me and I'm coming after, you've got to say what authority he came from and then I'll answer your question. <laughs> where my authority is coming from, what gives me the right to do what I'm doing, flipping tables in the temple and driving people out. So they confer among themselves, okay? They like get in their huddle, they're like, well, well, if, if we say that, that God gave John this authority, then they're gonna, Jesus is going to wonder, well, why didn't you listen to him? <laughs> why didn't you go out and repent? <laughs> and then suddenly they're scratching his Well, if, if we say, well, it's just because the people liked him. Okay, He was just popular. He was a crowd pleaser. And, and of course, there's always crowd pleasers out there, and that's why people like him. But, but they're like, if we say that, then the whole crowd of people that are listening to Jesus teach right now, they're going to turn on us and be mad at us because John was a phenomenal preacher from God. So what are we going to do? So they come back to him, and you can see this in verse 7 and 8. They come back to Jesus after their little huddle. So they answered, we don't know. We don't know where it was from. We don't know where it was from. And Jesus <laughs> said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. If you don't know if something's from God or not, why would I tell you? Why would I tell you? It's an interesting confrontation here, and in this chapter, we're going to see all these different like volleys going back and forth. People trying to just like attack Jesus, destroy him. The religious leaders are really upset because he's flipping things over. He's coming in as the king. And what Jesus is establishing here is that not just that he's an authority, but he's the authority. That he's not just something nice in your life, that you can add to all the other nice things in your life. Because if that were the case, the Pharisees wouldn't be mad, would they? These religious leaders. If, if Jesus is just like, I'm a good teacher, I'm a rabbi, and I want to teach you some important lessons about how not to worry. He did teach that, right? But Jesus did much more than that. And I want to say this because a lot of people, and some of you might be here today, you're like, I've heard there's some good things about Jesus. There are. Everybody likes Jesus. There's some great stuff about Jesus. But Jesus isn't something you can just add on to your life. He's not. If he were, the, the religious leaders wouldn't, wouldn't be mad. But Jesus isn't an add-on. He's what everything must be built on. Amen. A lot of people are like, okay, Buddhist meditation, that's good. Okay, I like that. I can clear my head. The idea of karma out there, oh, that, that sounds kind of good. I do good things. Good things will eventually come back to me. And then, then love your neighbor as yourself. Man, that's gold. Literally, the golden rule, right? I'll add that too. But Jesus didn't flip over tables and flip the world upside down because he was just saying, just add me to all your other things. He was saying, uh, you must build everything in your life upon me. And I know there's someone here today who needs to hear that. You're trying to just add Jesus in. It doesn't work that way. He's the foundation. Everything is built on top of Jesus and his authority. And you need to hear that today. And that's why Jesus goes on to make this abundantly clear as he teaches a parable here, okay? And this parable, if you know, these, there's these stories that tell deeper spiritual truths. And this one is very much an allegory. So I'm going to tell you what everything means, but I want you to really focus on each aspect of this parable that Jesus tells because he's really going to be establishing something important. And, and we're going to see, it's like, oh, what does that represent? What does that represent? That's what an allegory is, right? Everything represents something else. So Jesus tells this story. Um, he goes on in verse 9. 
It says, he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Okay. There's a wealthy landowner. Plants a vineyard. Okay. It's like, okay, great, we're going to have some wine. We're going to have some great grapes coming in season. So then he, he brings in some tenants to farm, to, to work the vineyard so that he will have a crop at the harvest time. So then what happens is that he sends one of his servants at harvest time. Okay, they've been working it all season. That's what happens, okay, those of you guys who aren't agriculturalists, right? You, you work the crop until there's a harvest. And then when there's a harvest, you bring in the harvest. And if somebody was a tenant farmer like that, part of their pay of their rent, or maybe the whole rent would be paying some of the produce from the harvest. So this rich landowner who's gone away for a long time sends one of his servants to go collect his produce, just what he's owed. And the tenants see this servant coming, and they're like, yeah, we kind of like what we're doing here. We kind of like our way of doing things, and we like to keep the crop for ourselves. So they beat up the first servant, kick him out. Well, that was easy, right? So the landowner, as you can imagine, what, what would you be feeling if you were like, okay, some of you guys own, you own some property, right? I know, in the front row here, Pam, right? Okay, if somebody's not paying their rent, and they beat up the person you're sending to go collect the rent, what are you going to do, Pam? You don't say it. Don't say it out loud, okay? <laughs> this is recorded, okay? We, we can talk afterwards, right? You yeah, you can't do anything in COVID, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's right. COVID protections, okay. Um, but they send the first servant, and they turn him away empty-handed, so they, the landowner sends a second servant. Maybe this guy can handle it, okay? Be a little tougher. And he comes in, and it says they grab him and they shame him. I don't know exactly what they did, but there was something that maybe, my guess is they kicked him away naked. That'd be pretty shaming, okay? Not only are we going to beat you up, but we're going to strip your clothes and send you out with nothing on your back, okay? That's my guess of what the shaming thing is. I don't know. But it was something shameful. <laughs> Kick him out empty-handed. How would you feel then, Pam? Okay. Even a little more upset. But still, the landowner sends a third servant. Okay, third servant, you go collect what I am due. It's the rent. It's the harvest. And they take the third one. They take the third one. And they treat him even worse. It says they wounded him and threw him out. Not just beating up. There's a wound now. He has to be going to a hospital, okay? Once again, empty-handed. Now, if you're reading this at all, and if you're thinking the, the, the mind of the landowner, and you're thinking, okay, my rent is due, three people I've sent, and they get beat up, and each one's getting treated worse than the last one, right? Beat up, shamed, wounded. Be a little angry, right? What would most of us do in that situation? We're going to get the police involved. We're going to get the law involved. Even if we have to get Judge Judy, we want to do something to set things straight, okay? I, you owe me my rent, Okay? I think that's what most landlords would do at that point, correct? But Jesus says something odd here, and it's really odd, because it says that the landowner, and you can look at this in, in, in verse 13, says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Respect is a word for respecting authority, right? 
They're going to listen to his authority, that maybe finally they'll, they'll listen to my son. I love my son. He represents me. If you hurt my son, it's like hurting me. So they've got to listen to my son, right? And if you're thinking that that's not normal for a landlord to do that, you're right. The tenants have already hurt each of the first three. There's a pattern going on, isn't there? But the son goes. And when the tenants see him, they think, hmm, here's the son. If we get rid of him, then who's going to inherit the land? Well, maybe we can take it. It can be all ours. We can be our own authority and not listen to this landlord anymore. We own this stuff now. It's us. So it says that they threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 15, you see this? I'm sorry. They throw him out of the vineyard. I don't have this up here on the slide. And they kill him. That's what they do to the son. Treat each one worse than the last one. The son, finally, let's just kill him. And in verse uh, 15, the second half, it says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? At this point, right? Jesus answers. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others, bringing justice. You've murdered my son. Now you'll face the death penalty. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Okay, it's actually probably a little bit stronger, maybe even bordering on a curse word here. It's a Greek phrase, meganoito. It's only a couple times in the Bible. It's really bad. Maybe like, hell no. Hell no. How, uh, how, how could they do that? Do you know why the people are so upset about this? Because they understood this parable very well. And they knew who the tenants were. And what each part of this parable represented. We, we know this for sure. They understood it immediately. Even if you guys don't, I'll teach you. Don't worry. Okay? Verse 19. They knew exactly what Jesus meant because it says, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him, Jesus, immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. This was a word of condemnation and judgment over what they had done. So, what does each part of the parable represent? It's an allegory, remember? Not all parables are like that. In fact, very few parables are that way. But this one is. It's very clear. So who is the land owner? God. God, our Father in heaven. Pretty simple. You guys got that. Man, you guys are quick. What's the vineyard? Us. It's Israel. It's God's people. In fact, in those days, if you read throughout the Old Testament, vineyard was a very common um, analogy for the nation of Israel. It's like if we're here and, and you see a bald eagle, what do you think? America. Right? We know it, bald eagle represents America. We see a maple leaf, what do we say? Canada, eh? Right? We know that, that these things represent nations in the same way a vineyard represented Israel. So they would have known this is talking about God's people, Israel. So, who then are the tenants on this vineyard? Pharisees, the religious leaders. It's God's sinful people who want things their way and not God's way. They want to be the authority, not God to be the authority. They want things for themselves, not having to give to God. They want it all for themselves. So I think in, in turn it might represent us too. Ever sinned? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. We all have. 
We're the sinful people of God who think our way instead of God's way, who want to do it uh, that, that we're the authority, not God as the authority. I'm going to build my own life, not build on his foundation. So then, who are the servants? Anybody? Who are the three servants that come? Anybody want to guess? These are the prophets. God sent his prophets, his messengers, his servants to come one after the other after the other. If you read through the Old Testament, it's like one prophet after another prophet after another prophet. And a lot of people get stuck reading the prophets because like there's one prophet after another being like, Israel, you need to repent of your sins. God's people, you've done some bad stuff. Come back to God. God loves you. He wants you. Repent of your sins or you will be destroyed. And guess what? God will still love you after that. This is the message of the prophets again and again and again. And guess what happened to the prophets again and again and again? Nobody listened to them. In fact, when God called Ezekiel, man, it, this is like the worst calling in the world I can imagine, but, but it's following God, so it's good. But this is what God said to Ezekiel. He said, Ezekiel, I want you to go tell those rebels that they're rebellious and they need to turn from their sins. And Ezekiel, no one will ever listen to you. If God had sent me here to Denver and God was like, Matt, you're going to have a 40-year career there in Denver and not a single person has ever come to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Good luck. I'd be like, please, somewhere else. I'd be like Jonah, right? Like, I'd rather get thrown into the ocean than go where God tells me to go. That's what happened to the prophets. It was a tough gig. It was a tough gig. People insulted them. They hated them. They didn't listen to them. There were prophets like Elijah, who when he went and told people to repent, Ahab put a hit on him. The king said, you better kill that prophet. So he runs and hides by himself, and he's depressed, living in a valley. That's the story of Elijah right there. Okay. Or what about Jeremiah when he preaches to people? He was a sad prophet. They call him the weeping prophet. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations. Okay. This is like Edgar Allan Poe stuff, right? Radiohead, right? Okay, he's like sad all the time because it's so hard. And they take him, and they throw him in a pit and leave him there to die. So what happened to Jeremiah. Or, or, or people like Zechariah, who was literally murdered for preaching God's word. Or John the Baptist, who Jesus had just referenced. Do you know what happened to him? Chopped off his head and served it at a dinner party. It was rough to be a prophet. People don't listen to God. All these servants, one after another, are getting hurt by God's people, who God loves. And he's trying to warn them, please come back to me. Please come back to me. Please come back to me. I love you. Repent of your sins. I'm warning you, please do it before something bad happens. Hundreds and thousands of years, this happened. So then who's the son? Jesus. Father in heaven is so slow to anger and so loving to us and patient with us in our sin and rebellion that he sent his own son to walk among us to show us exactly what God is like. Loving and kind, caring and compassionate. And still, what happened to Jesus? And he's predicting this, this last week of his life. He knows what's going to happen. They're going to kill him. They're going to reject him. It says they kicked him out. Literally, they took Jesus and they made him be executed outside of the city limits. They put him up on a cross. They tortured him and then left him for dead. And he died upon that cross. So we figured out these analogies pretty clearly, right? We know this allegory, all these different things represent. So here's the last one. What is it then when the landowner comes back at the end? What is that? Judgment. There will be judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. Saying what's coming next? You guys hate me? 
You guys are going to be uh, creating all the, the conniving and trying to figure out how to destroy me this week, and you will. But guess what? There will be judgment, and it's coming. You will be judged for every word you've spoken, for every action you've done. Your heart will be judged. And those who choose not to obey the king will be separated from him for eternity because of their own actions. Just know this. God lets people go to hell. He lets people, because if they're not going to follow God in this lifetime, why would they want to spend eternity with him? He lets them. And Jesus is just saying that. Like, it's coming. This is your final warning, people. Listen, before it's too late. This whole entire parable is a warning, trying to make it very clear that anything not built on the cornerstone will collapse. God, our Father, has sent Jesus to live among us, to love us, because he wants us to bear fruit, right? He wants us to bear fruit in our lives. And, and if we don't turn to Jesus and, and make him the foundation of our life, make him our king and authority, then there will be judgment. We will condemn ourselves. Jesus wants to make this very plain for everyone to hear. Anything not built on the cornerstone will collapse. That's his message here. And if some of you are still thinking, well, I don't know, are, are you sure? Yes. Jesus makes it very clear. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Once again, quoting Psalm 118, this was the same psalm that they said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quoted this Chapter 19, as he came into Jerusalem. He's talking about a cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone is? If you're a stonemason, you dig in the quarry, and probably that's what Jesus was, guys. Called him a carpenter. That either meant work with stone or wood. There was not very many trees in Nazareth where he grew up, but there were a lot of stone quarries. Jesus was probably a stonemason. He would have known exactly what it was like to build and work with stone. So you go out into the quarry, and you try to find the best piece of rock that could be a cornerstone, it could be a foundation, and all the rest of your building is built based on that one cornerstone. And what he's saying is that people have now come, they've dug and they found this rock, and they see it and they think, ah, I don't like it. It doesn't fit my, my style. They reject it, okay? They take this cornerstone and they're like, it's not good enough for me. I'm rejecting it, right? But Jesus is saying that same, same rejected stone is now the cornerstone of everything. And if you want a life that's built to last, if you want eternal life, if you want a family that can make it through storms, if you want anything in life that will last, you need to build on this cornerstone. Then Jesus says in verse, second half of verse, or I'm sorry, in verse 18, he's quoting now from Isaiah. He said, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. I think there's two different things going on here. He says, see that stone? He, he's doing a lot of wordplay on stone. He's saying there's the cornerstone. But also, you see that stone? If you're living your life, there are going to be people who trip over this stone. And they collapse, right? They're crushed. They trip over it. Because they're going their own way. And I'm telling you this because there are some of you who will build your life, and in this lifetime, 
before judgment, in this lifetime, your life will collapse. You will get to the point where you've been like, okay, I've been doing my career my way, and then it falls apart. That, that I've been doing my relationships my way, and then they fall apart, and you're alone, and you're angry and bitter. That you're saying, I'm going to do everything in my life my way, and you find yourself angry, depressed, anxious all the time. You're like, why is it even worth living? Some of you today have already experienced this. That's why you're here in church or you're listening online, because you have tripped over the rock. And in this lifetime, you have a chance now to repent and build on the rock. But it also says the second thing. There are some who have built, right? And it seems in this lifetime, they've gotten away with it. Right? They've built everything up good. They're like, I had the affair and never got caught. I'm good, right? I built my business my way. Who cares about who I've exploited and hurt? I'm going to be fine. And there are people who will die in this lifetime, never facing the collapse in this lifetime. But what does Jesus say is going to happen to them? They're going to be crushed on judgment day. Do you see that? So Jesus is teaching us here. This stone is the cornerstone. Everything is built on this stone. So hopefully, I, I'm praying that all of you will realize that Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. And if you build on him, it will last forever. For this life and the next. So I'm saying you this, our big idea is spoken in the negative, right? Anything not built on the cornerstone will collapse. But the good news is that we now have time to build on the cornerstone. Because some of you are like, well, Matt, Jesus has been the add-on in my life. There's some good things. I go to church when it, it works with my schedule, which is rarely, right? Okay, I, I pray when I really need something. But Jesus is saying that we can build on this foundation again. And today we can make that decision. I, I'm going to do it. Some of you need to do this again. Just say, hey, I've been not really thinking about it, but yes, I need to make Jesus the cornerstone of my career, of my marriage, of my family needs to be the center so that when we're making decisions about, should we pray before meals? Yes, okay, with my kids. Should we take them to church? Yes, okay, who cares what other activities are going on? Because sports won't last. But eternity is a long time. Okay, and we're going to say, I'm going to build on this foundation. I'm going to make my life, my marriage, my business, my career. I'm going to make moves. I'm going to make decisions on who to date based on this foundation. And I'm going to stand on it. And guess what? You will stand forever. Forever you will stand on the cornerstone. And that's why Jesus elsewhere would say, there's the, the foolish man who builds on the sand, right? A storm comes, it's gone. It doesn't how, matter how great his castle is that he's constructed or the material he made it out of. What matters is what it's built on. But Jesus said, the man who builds his house on the rock will endure. And do you know what the rock is, Jesus said? The one who hears my word and puts it into practice. This is the foundation. This is the authority for everything. So today, I'm challenging you with the words of Jesus. Build your life on the cornerstone. If I could have uh, Sam and Laura come on up. I think this, this takes us a moment of reflection because I don't think any of us want to trip, right? Some of us are tripping right now and you're like, oh my gosh, my life is falling apart. Now's a chance to restart, a reset. Some of you too, or maybe you're like, yeah, I've been trying to do this, but there's some things I failed in. It's okay. We can come back, and Jesus loves us. He offers forgiveness 
to anyone who comes to him in repentance. Always. That's why he keeps waiting and waiting. Our Father in heaven, he's like, I know you're going to hurt my prophets. I know you're not going to listen to them, but I love you so much that I'm going to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that you will return to me. And I'm going to even send my own son to go after you and die on a cross because I want to show you how much I love you. Come back to me and build your life on the only thing that will last. So I want us to take a moment right now to do that. And if you're here and you're saying, I want my life, to be built on the cornerstone. Maybe you've already done it, and this is just a, re- a recommitment. Yeah, Matt, I'm in. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, 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 I haven't been doing it right for a long time. But I'm making this decision again today. I'm going to rebuild. Or some of you, maybe for the first time, are saying, I've liked Jesus. I thought he's a good thing. He's an add-on, but I'm ready to build on him. If, that's, if any one of those three is you, I want you to stand up right now. Could you stand up? If you're ready to build on this rock, ready to build on this cornerstone. If you're not, that's cool. We love you. But if you want to build your life on this cornerstone, please stand. And, and, and as a response, is, is telling God that we're doing this, we're going to sing a song that I think you guys know. That I will build my life upon his love. It is a firm foundation. Can we sing that together? We'll build my life 